Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. An extraordinary antidote comes to us from the annuals of ancient Mideastern history. And as the story goes, Cyrus, the great conqueror of then the known world, including Babylon, had a general under his authority whose wife was suspected of treason. She was tried before a great tribunal and found guilty and sentenced to death. After the sentence was pronounced, the woman's husband, who was a general, made his way to Cyrus's throne and requested, King Cyrus, please let me take her place. Cyrus, in awe of what was transpiring before him, said to his court, Can we terminate a love such as great as this? He then paroled the woman to her husband. And as the couple left the court, the general said to his wife, Did you see the benevolent look in Cyrus's eyes as he pardoned you? And the wife responded, I only had eyes for the one who loved me enough that he was willing to die for me. The remarkable story dimly reflects this burning emotion of Peter's heart as he sat across from the fire in John 21 on the shore of the Tiberias Sea and was drawn by Christ's repeated questions to consciously affirm his love for him. All Peter could see was the one who had loved him enough that he was willing to die for him. And Peter loved Jesus with all of his heart and by verbalizing it, not only received restoration but stated for all the believers in the highest priority of our lives, loving God, loving God. We are to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul, all of our mind and strength. Our lives and our service and our good deeds mean nothing without a love for a one true God above all else. Last week's sermon had to do with this threefold statement between Jesus and Peter and the priority and the centrality of the gospel. And Jesus asked Peter candidly, he said, do you love me? Very candidly said, do you love me? Which was followed by three statements, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. Very brief and pointed, right? Very short and sweet. Very short statements, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. Very pointed and very brief. And not necessarily as brief as the pastor's long messages, right? (laughs) You're like, man, I wish that was the sermon today. (laughs) I wish that was the sermon. I can go home. Brief and pointed, right? These very brief pointed statements about the centrality church of what it really means to love God, to follow God, to love each other, to take care of people. It needed needed repeated three times as well. There's There's gotta be good reason for that and for us too. Bruce Milne is an author. He says it like this, following Jesus and loving Jesus mean accepting responsibility for Jesus's people, a truth which is in need of rehabilitation at the present time. Commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not a single person in the sense that he comes to us without another attachment. He comes to us when we love him. He comes to us with a bride whom he loves for and he sacrificed himself for. In Ephesians 5.25, to be in relationship while ignoring or despising the bride of Christ, the church, is no more acceptable than such behavior would be in human context when marrying, when related to a married friend. Far less so because the relationship that Jesus has has infinitely greater dimensions to it. We love God and we love others. We love his church. 
It means turning and accepting Christ, but it also means turning and accepting the bride of Christ, which is the church. He goes on to say that Jesus' love for his church remains undiminished, even though the church be torn, ill-clad, dirty in places, and generally malnourished and diseased. The church is still his bride, the people for whom he died, and therefore the burden of his concern. So he speaks this word today for those who will hear it. He says, feed, in John 21 from last week, he says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. And after accepting this commission, Peter hears this, and he accepts this, he immediately is confronted with its cost. And Jesus prepares him for a death that he would die. Peter, he says, feed my, feed my sheep, and then you're going to die a horrific death on a cross. And eventually, church history tells us that he did die a cross, literally upside down. And so he goes to a place where he doesn't want to go. And Jesus predicts this to him. And the principle all applies to all of us following Jesus along the path. The road of discipleship, the road to following Jesus is the road of the cross. And as Jesus says earlier, he made clear anyone who hates views as secondary, so to speak, their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. So what we find at the end of John, at the end of John and where we are today, John 21, is that this gospel and this end of the gospel gives us priority of what it means, of what priority looks like, what this thing called following Christ really involves, and kind of what it looks like on the ground, and what puts it first and foremost. And we've been looking at the interactions and people that Jesus interacts with after his resurrection. And the kind of people that he interacts with are very telling. The kind of people, the, the particular kind of people, and the, just the, all of the conversations that he has and the interactions that he has is very interesting and very important for us. So we've been looking at this. So today we're going to finish out John 21. We're going to finish this out today. And so as we finish this out, I pray that we would have experienced maybe even just our own personal experience we personally encountered the risen Christ in a very real and tangible way. You see, after that first Easter, after that Easter happened, after they had followed Christ, after they had followed him, they'd experienced a death of so many deaths, death of faith and experience of relationships and expectations. And maybe those expectations line the thoughts of your heart. And maybe your experience has not measured up to what it could be or what you thought it would be in your life. Maybe you have been bruised and battered and, and life's just gone not the way you had hoped for and, and, and the life has just worn you down. And maybe those expectations have been shattered. And maybe you were just sitting in that pew today just rethinking the countless times you wish life had turned out a very different way. And all of those happened for those followers after that first Easter. And they were asking, what's next? What's the next step? What is the next right thing for me to do? <coughs> after that Easter, they were asking that. And you're left wondering, what's going to change? Maybe you're like, well, what's going to change? What is next for my life? He rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples. But what is next? What about the despair I'm experiencing? The doubt that I can't overcome? The relationship that needs restored? The life that I hoped for and, and a promised God? What, what about all of this? And what does this look like? So as we look at this today, I pray that we have experienced some of this in our own lives and that the resurrection is deeply personal and touches ordinary lives with tremendous power. Very ordinary interactions Jesus has after he resurrects and after he meets with people. These are just very, very ordinary people that he touches. Church, I pray that happens for you. I pray that you would experience the real and tangible and personally 
you would personally know that the tremendous power of Jesus Christ, as you were reminded of that, as we find that across today's account. So from John 21, in this, in this picture, this is the end of John 21, 770 of that Bible in front of you. If you would like to follow along, it'll be on the screen behind me. But just in the scene prior, Jesus meets the disciples in a failed fishing expedition. They had fished all night long. This is what they had done their whole lives, and they had failed because of this. They had failed that fishing expedition. And they went all night without a catch of fish. And then Jesus is standing 100 yards away from shore. They're unsure if it's him or not. And he calls them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, and they had done this all night. You can imagine, like, they're, they're the experts in fishermen, and then Jesus, they're not sure who that is. There's some guy in the distance, they're not sure who it is, tells them to throw their net on the cross the other side, and they, they, they do that, and they have this tremendous catch of fish. They obey it. They obey that word, and they have this tremendous catch of fish after an unsuccessful night of fishing. Peter gets out of the boat. He jumps in that cold water. I imagine it was cold. It was dark. He jumps out of the boat, and he swims as fast as he can to Jesus. And Jesus is right there on shore, and he's ready to serve them breakfast over a fire of burning coals, including fish. And we're reminded of our deep dependence on Christ in this story. We're reminded of just how much we need Jesus and how much we must trust his word and trust his voice together. So if you are visiting or watching with us, we at this church value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. And I pray that you would find a church that does the same, preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. It's going to be on the screen behind me and on 770 of the Bible in front of you. John 21, starting in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want, so Jesus has this, he says he's going to die this death. You're going to stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you. It's a, it's, it's prediction of that Peter's going to die. And then Peter asked about the other guy, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Lord, what about him? And that's probably John. Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must what? Follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things, and he wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, I love this little, this is the last verse. It's kind of the final word. 
Final word about this. Jesus did, isn't it interesting? Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them are written down, I suppose not, not even the whole world would have the room for the books that would be written. Isn't that interesting? There's so much more, so much more, but the books in the whole world would not, it's just, it's just amazing. I love that little verse there at the end. Uh, in the end, this is Jesus. We said this, this. Jesus is predicting to Peter that this is the kind of death he would die. He would die a crucified death, and church history tells us that Peter would die upside down. You see, we said this last week, but this call to Peter is also the same as us too. The call church is when the lights go down, the music fades, when all the kind of the curtain closes. As we follow Christ, as we follow Jesus, we bear the cross. We are the people of the cross. We are not our own. And by the way we love is by humbly submitting to the cross, the way of the cross, living a cross-shaped life. Church, this life is not our own. We follow Jesus. May other people know that we follow Jesus and we die to ourselves. We take up our cross and follow him. And Mark 8 reminds us that he called to the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my what? Disciple must deny themselves, take up their what? Cross and what? Follow. And forever who wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants to live their life for me and the gospel will save it. And that word there to deny, that word didn't deny, can simply mean to deny the truth of a statement. But it almost always has overtones of association connected to a person. Might be to disown or renounce. This is the verb that is used when Peter denies Jesus. He denies that he knows Jesus or has any association with him. Christy Gambrell is an author, and she says, Self-denial is intentional disowning of the self or stepping away from the relational with the self as primary. Jesus is not making a statement of whether the self is bad, but about who we are most closely associated with, who our primary allegiance is to, him or ourselves. And oftentimes it is ourselves. As human beings, we look to kind of turn a little bit inward. We turn into our own heart. He made this statement about taking up one's cross before he was crucified. And although this would mean a much fuller metaphor after his death, it must have meant something to his listeners beforehand as well. You see, crucifixion was specifically reserved for those offenders who had rebelled against authority. To take up one's cross referred to the practice of forcing a condemned person to carry the cross beam to his execution site. And this showed that although he had rebelled against authority, a condemned person was now to show completely conquered that his last act in life would be carry the instrument of his demise to the place of death. It was a show of complete and utter submission. A call to bear one's cross as a part of following Jesus is to call to be submitted to Christ as the condemned criminal was to death. She adds this, Therefore, when Christ calls for self-denial and cross-bearing, he's claiming authority. Following Christ means we disown the self, deny the self, and give allegiance to him instead. And it means giving him allegiance down to the very depths of our being and the depths of our heart. Peter would die a criminal's death. And did you notice that little phrase there? Did you notice that little phrase? Jesus said this to indicate in verse 19, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God would glorify God. Did you kind of notice that little phrase there? Glorify God. It's kind of a sobering thought to think that a death might glorify God. 
But it's actually in suffering by which God's glory is revealed. And, and oftentimes, pain and suffering is by which and the means by which God's glory can be revealed in our own life, but also in our personal, just personal lives, but also maybe even in our friends and family. God's glory is often revealed most fully in our pain and suffering. We can experience God's hand and glory through our pain and suffering. We come to know the shepherding hand of God. We come to know just the powerful hand of God through pain and suffering. Jesus prayed for himself saying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he prayed that in John 17. It's the high priestly prayer before he is executed, before, just before he gets executed. He praises for his disciples. Jesus' re-entry into glory it was through the cross. And his path to paradise was the cross. He looked through certain suffering to his certain, glo- to his certain glory so that he and his Father might glory together. Jesus' return to glory was not only the only thing on his heart. He prayed for his immediate disciples as well. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And to the church in Rome, he says this, And we know that for, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Receiving the truth of these two passages is paramount if we're to welcome the reality that suffering prepares us for glory. And Philippians 1.29 says that shows us that both the believing and suffering are for the sake of Christ. It shows us to realize that our lives are not our own. They're primarily not our own lives. As a matter of fact, it's we have died and now it's Christ who lives in us as Galatians 2.20 reminds us. For it is Christ who lives in us. So when we ask God to glorify his name in us, we are saying, God, we're saying this, God, use me however you see fit so that you might be glorified in and through my life. For I was bought by the precious blood of your son, Jesus. And God often answers such prayers through our suffering, but when he leads us to and through suffering, he also produces something in us as well. He also produces something in us through our suffering. It is inevitable for all of us who call upon the Lord as Christ's followers. We will go through pain and suffering in this world. Romans 5 reminds us, Paul says this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Romans 8.18, and it's why elsewhere he proclaims this, for, his, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal in 2 Corinthians 4. 17 and 18. That's why Peter says, and after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And 1 Peter 5 tells us that. And Peter is told that he's going to die a crucified death, a death on a cross. And sometimes it's kind of, that's kind of a hard to wrap our minds around. It's kind of just hard to grasp, kind of hard to put our minds around and Especially 
And the, the, as we talked even on Wednesday, we talked about this. It's kind of hard for the church in America to kind of experience, kind of really grasp what this means because we do not have the threat of some of the other countries around us, some of the many other countries around the world who you may be, you may be, at, your life might be completely at stake if you call yourself a Christian. And if you follow Jesus, your life could be at risk. And in America, North America, we do not have that threat. And oftentimes, I mean, I can imagine for those missionaries and even uh, Alliance and, Christian, and, and Christians and missionaries, all of our missionaries around the world reading this verse and taking to heart the threat of just everyday violence in their world. And we do not have that threat here. We really don't have the threat of our lives at stake to follow Jesus. We don't have that. Alan Patton says it like this, I have never thought that Christians would be free of suffering, for our Lord suffered. And I've come to believe that he suffered, not to save us from suffering, but to teach us how to bear suffering. For he knew that there is no life without suffering. We must be people who bear the cross, who unwaveringly profess Jesus Christ as Lord and not to compromise our lordship to him. There will be hardship. There will be, there, it is coming and hardship is coming even. We're promised that too. A hardship will come, heartache and the like. But notice in the passage that we read, Peter is reaffirmed twice that he ought to follow Jesus. Did you notice twice? He says, you follow me. Follow me two times, verse 19 and verse 22. Follow me, and in verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Twice Peter is told two times to follow Jesus. And how often too, church, and myself included, how often too that we need that push and encouragement and that oomph, so to speak, to do the same. We, like, Jesus is saying, follow me. And how many times, church, do we need to be like pushed and kind of like, come on, follow me, right? Like even kind of each other, like bring each other along, follow me. We need to be pushed and to follow Christ and brought along in that as well. And we can hear the Lord even saying that to us through this passage. You see, when we follow Christ, we follow him, but we also help other people do the same thing. As the church, we help people do the same thing, feeding and loving the lambs as, as Jesus has Affirming this to Peter is also, we bring other people into the fold and we say, would you come alongside me as we follow Christ together? We must follow Jesus not as a life of prosperity, but as a life of carrying and shouldering the cross. And far too often, the capital C church has bought into, brought into much of the prosperity gospel, meaning that when we follow Jesus, we will become rich and prosperous. When in fact, following Jesus is actually the other way around. It is denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him as well. And we get to this passage where Peter, again, it's the, then the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's Peter, bigger picture of Peter. He is this guy, he said, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Peter is going to be a front runner for the early church as well. And he gets, Peter and Jesus have had this very close and personable relationship. And 
up to this point, I mean, he's denied Jesus three times, and he's, he's brought Peter around the fire. I mean, Peter cut off the guy's ear, if you remember that, in a crucifixion, and very close and personal interaction with him. And he's at the finish line. Jesus and Peter are all at the finish line, could complete things with him. And yet, where do we find Peter again? He's like, feed my sheep. We think he's like at the finish line. And yet, where do we see Peter in this passage again? Peter's looking at the other disciple whom Jesus loved and was like, what about that guy? You think after all this with, with what Jesus has brought with Peter, he's, he jumped out of the boat. I mean, you, you name all the interactions that Peter has had. And we find him here looking at another disciple around him. It's like, what about that guy? Peter could not keep his eyes on his own journey to follow Christ. It's like, what about, what about that guy's journey? What about mine? And in a sense, I can't really blame the guy, right? He's being predicted that he's going to die a pretty horrific death. I can't really blame him. He was told that he would die a pretty, I mean, crucifixion. That's a really brutal way to die. But yet, look where Peter's eyes are. They're on others. Comparing the beloved disciple's journey to his own. Wondering about others. In church, sometimes this, there's this, this, this danger, that we compare our spiritual journey with other people, toward others. And we do this in multiple ways. We compare our road to their road and sort of we kind of wonder like, this person who follows Christ, this person who I know, they've had an easier road than I have, we think. We sort of like, ours has been a little bit more rocky and curvy and they haven't had that road that I have. We compare our journeys spiritually and it's dangerous to do this and we think that maybe that they've had an easier road than we have like we've followed Christ our whole life they they, maybe they haven't yet and we just compare our kind of our journeys we compare and we think like their road is easier than ours and vice versa but it's very unhealthy to do that we grow spiritually with our road that the Lord has marked out for us we look at those who maybe, who maybe we consider very, very, very spiritual, tell ourselves, and then we tell ourselves that we're not much of anything. And maybe we look, we look at other people, we look down on other people, unfortunately, and we say like, you know what, they're not there where I'm at yet, and we kind of have a superiority complex in place. Both of those attitudes are dangerous and unproductive. We often compare our spiritual health to other people. We say like, you know what, I'm going to put myself on this pedestal, they're here, or maybe they, I'm thinking I'm here, they're down here. Very personally in John 21, says this, Jesus says this to Peter very pointedly, follow me, follow me, don't look to others, you follow me. Jesus said to him, it was my will that he remained till I come. What is that to you? You follow me. In other words, don't concern yourself with what I choose to do with the lives of my other servants. Just keep following me. The Lord was not discouraging Peter's interest in the welfare of others, but the unhealthy habit of measuring one's lot with that of others. Church, it's dangerous to do. We are on our own path with the Lord. C.S. Lewis, he writes this in The Horse and the Boy, illustrates this point. The boy, Shasta, is conversing with the Christ figure, the lion Aslan. And Aslan accounts the sovereign workings in Shasta's life, how he was the lion who drove the jackals away while Shasta slept, and the one who comforted him along the houses of the dead, and the one who propelled the boat that bore him to the shore to receive help. As Shasta listened, and reflecting on the lion's sovereign claims, he suddenly questioned, 
Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child said the voice, I'm telling you, I'm telling your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Each of our lives is a sovereign creation by God. Our worth and our effectiveness is God's favor in our lives is not to be determined in comparison to other people. We are not to be involved in unprofitable musings about the relative provenances of our lives, maybe how one brother or sister has it easier or harder, or how one ministry is fraught with hardship and another is not. Or why one believer becomes famous, maybe one why becomes obscure and lives in obscurity. Church, all of us, we are just simply to follow Christ. Amen? We are simply to just follow Christ. And there's many facets to this comparing thing, particularly as it pertains to the church and as it pertains to our giftings and callings that we possess. And the temptation is to compare one's own work to that someone else's or we envy someone is often damaging in Christian work. We have all very different gifts, and the Lord has placed each one of us as disciples in a unique part of the body which makes up the church. We are the church, and we all have different giftings. We are not to compare our particular giftings to others. We are all uniquely called to exercise this to the edification of the body, and we are a better collective unit when we do so. As we're reminded in 1 Corinthians, just as one body, though one, has many parts, but it all has many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And everybody's got a part to play in the body. We are all uniquely made and crafted in the Christ image for the edification of this church, edification of the church, for the sake of the greater body. And each of us have a unique and specific role to play for the betterment of all of us. This is today's one point, church. If you kind of, if you've zoned out, here it is, right? It's okay if you have. I forgive you, and I still love you. Um, today's big idea is this. Follow your Lord Jesus where he leads you whatever your vocation is, whatever you do. Be faithful and glorify your Lord by what you do and leave the rest into his hands because he will take care of you. Follow the Lord, I'll say it again. Follow the Lord Jesus where he leads you, whatever your vocations are. Be faithful and glorify your Lord by what you do and leave the rest into his hands. He will take care of you. Amen? Amen. Worship team, will you come on up?